The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor, and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Matters podcast. I'm your host, Elaine Clark. I'm excited to continue to contribute to these conversations about mental health, trauma, and healing. So thank you so much for being here. If you're new, welcome. If you're returning, it's great to have you here. Today's episode does have a trigger warning. So if you feel triggered at any point, please come back to this episode at another time. My guest today is Holly Wood. She's an Orange County-based sex therapist, EMDR-trained specialist, and clinical sexologist specializing in trauma, sex, and intimacy concerns. She's currently pursuing her PhD in human sexuality from the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she's committed to sexual wellness by working with clients to heal from their past and develop the necessary skills to achieve more pleasurable and and more connected life. In today's conversation, we talk about the difference between sexual violence, sexual assault, and sexual trauma. We talk about the physical, psychological, and even sexual side effects after a sexual boundary rupture. We touch on the intersection between sexual trauma and eating disorders, which is really interesting. And we also talk about some research-proven modalities to support healing and even how partners can support each other in the the healing process and and in post-traumatic growth. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. Let's jump right in. Ali, it's so great to have you here today. Welcome to the Mindful Matters podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to preface by saying the topic of intimacy concerns and sex can be a charged topic and it can be activating or triggering in so many ways. So for the listener, if you need to take a break at any point and return, please do so. And Holly, before we dig into this topic today, I'd love to ask, how did you get into this space? What led you to go deeper into the realm of trauma and to specialize as a clinical sexologist? Sure. So um, I ended up there in a kind of roundabout way. So when I started going to school, um, I started studying biology for different uh, aspirations as far as my career. But then um, I got really tired of chemistry and I got really interested in gender and sexuality. And while going to school, I also was working. And so I ended up volunteering at my local rape crisis center, as well as working at my adult toy store. And what I noticed was there was a gap in the trauma healing and the the pleasurable parts of sex, right? The stuff that we get to see working in an adult toy store environment. So um, it became really clear to me and important to me to start filling that gap and working on, well, what does sex look like post-sexual trauma? And how can we help survivors not just move through you know, PTSD or other residual effects of sexual trauma, but also develop really healthy, enjoyable ways of having sex with people they trust. Yeah. I'm so curious. I'd love if you can speak into a little bit about your experience working in a rape crisis center. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, so working in a rape crisis center as as an advocate, it is it is a lot of work, and it's basically crisis intervention. Um, so my experience was either working crisis hotline, so where you might be the first person that someone speaks to about this experience, which is a very vulnerable place for them to be in. And so I really honored that of being the first person that this somebody who had experienced a sexual violent situation would call. Um, the other thing is, in addition to doing crisis hotline, I would also... Uh, arrive at the hospitals for SART exams. So we call that sexual assault response teams, where that team consists of the nurses who uh, perform the uh, sexual assaults kits to gather evidence, um, as well as the other doctors, the police that are involved if the person is reporting. And then my role as the advocate is to show up and just really be supportive of the person who is there who has experienced the trauma. So um, it was it was really eye-opening just to see the process of everything that somebody who's experienced sexual violence has to go to beyond just the actual violent experience itself, right? This person then, um, if they report, has to go through a SART exam or what some folks call a rape kit to gather evidence. And that can be additionally invasive and additionally traumatic. So being a support person for somebody who's potentially being re-traumatized is a really important role to have and help me to see even more of the, the depth of the struggle that folks see when dealing with sexual violence. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important that we give some context to these terms so that we we know what we're talking about here, especially for the listener. What is the difference between sexual violence, sexual assault, and, and sexual trauma? Can you unpack that for the listener? Sure, sure. So sexual violence is, I use that as like an umbrella, all-encompassing, non-legal term that refers to Uh, sexual assault, rape, sexual abuse, all of those underneath. Um, It can also refer to sexual contact or behavior that occurs without explicit consent, like groping or like view of pornography in front of somebody else who's not consenting, right? Um, Rape itself, so in the U.S., right, the, the definition of rape by the Department of Justice means the the penetration, no matter how slight of the vagina, the anus, or any other orifice with another body part or an object. So when we're talking about rape, we're more so talking about penetration, and it's also a legal term, Mm -hmm. whereas sexual violence is the umbrella or all-encompassing term for all those different things, experiences that can fall under sexual violence. And then sexual trauma is defined more so as the the after effects. So any lingering physical, emotional, psychological symptoms resulting from an experience of sexual violence. That's what we define as sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. And what about sexual assault? So sexual assault um, is explicitly referring to sexual contact or behavior that occurs without explicit consent of the victim. Right. So... This can include rape, but it can also include other um, non-consensual sexual acts. Yeah. 
Okay. That's, that's great to know. I think that's really important, you know, just to set ourselves up for our conversation today. And I love that you touched a little bit on, you know, the psychological and the physical impacts, because I think after a sexual boundary rupture, uh, you know, there are those psychological, physical, and even sexual side effects. What Mm -hmm. are some of those side effects that someone might experience? I'm wondering if you can speak into that for us today. Sure. So um, if if we were divided up as, you know, like uh, physical, uh, emotional, psychological or sexual, there's a lot of different things that can happen in each of those categories. So directly physical folks might experience um, physical pain, um, not just from the uh, initial impact, but thereafter feeling some emotional pain as the body holds on a trauma, you might notice muscle tightness or fatigue or different experiences in the body. Psychologically, most commonly we see associated with sexual traumas, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as anxiety, depression, and a host of other psychological disorders. And then sexually, what we see happens um, a lot of times with survivors of sexual violence is that they also experience sexual side effects like um, a fear of sex, avoiding sex, approaching sex as an obligation, maybe with another partner, uh, feelings of anger, feelings of disgust, feelings of being emotionally distant, maybe not being able to be present during sex, even if you're now with a trusted partner. Um, People might have intrusive or disturbing sexual thoughts and images. They might experience difficulty even having an intimate relationship because of that violation causes people to struggle with trust. Um, They again might experience physical pain that uh, is specific to sexual organs like vaginal pain or orgasm difficulties. Um, And this is for both men and women, right? Men might experience erectile or ejaculatory difficulties. Um, And, and then, Folks might also experience, you know, on the other end, uh, sexual compulsions or engaging in risky sexual behaviors. Yeah. You know, I I can imagine that some individuals, after they've experienced a a sexual boundary rupture, they might move towards hypersexuality or others might move towards hyposexuality, or maybe they're even bouncing back and forth between both. Uh, What Mm -hmm. can you say about this? What can you add to this? Um, Just that, that both of them are normal and that both of them have different, maybe different reasons associated with them. So whether somebody experiences hypersexuality or sexual compulsivity or swings completely on the other side of the spectrum, both of them are reasonable outcomes of sexual uh, violence. When it comes to the hypersexuality, uh, what I notice is that it almost, um, for, for a lot of folks, almost becomes like a way of reclaiming that power, right? Of, of well, I lost the ability to um, have power in this sexual situation. So I'm just going to swing the other way and show that I have power by engaging in more risky sexual behaviors, in more hypersexual behaviors. Um, or it might just be a way to for them to self-soothe because it feels good, or it might be a way for them to detach. Um, So both of them are common. They just have different reasons associated with them. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think what's really interesting too, is that there, uh, more, and this is something I've actually noticed and I wanted, I want to dig into this with you is mm-hmm. the intersection between sexual trauma and eating disorders. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like both come back to this idea of control and claiming mm-hmm. power back. Have you mm-hmm. seen in your practice or from your experiences that individuals who've experienced, you know, sexual trauma or, or who are, who have gone through or are expressing that they've, they've experienced sexual trauma, do they develop uh, some form of eating disorder? Um, Cause I, I think what can happen is that we might seek food as safety because food is our first emotional neurochemical regulator that we have right out of the womb. And so there's mm-hmm. an interesting um, relation there. And, and I wanted to ask you, is that true? Do you see that in your practice? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I do see that in my practice and eating disorders are frequently associated with trauma and specifically sexual trauma. Um, but I'm also a researcher. So I look at the research, not just my anecdotal experience yeah. in the office, but research wise, there's a lot of evidence that shows correlation, but maybe not so much causation. So correlation wise, um, research shows that sexual violence may impact eating disorders through through basically two different funnels. And one of which is through the impact of sexual violence on body perceptions, right? So having this violation of your body might result in feelings of shame, dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with your body, fear of future, future sexual traumas, excuse me. Um, so having a sense of control over the amount of food that you eat and having that have an influence on your body is one funnel in which things can happen. And also, right, if you're thinking about fear of future sexual trauma, um, I think a lot of times when we think eating disorders, we mostly think in terms of like restriction, but, um, you know, binge eating disorders, if food is a sense of safety, like you mentioned, food is one of our first experiences of safety, it's comforting. And on top of that, it has the effect of changing your body in a way that somebody may think they are less susceptible to sexual violence. That's one way that sexual trauma has has shown to be correlated with eating disorders. And the other way has to do with more so psychological difficulties. Um, So again, that need to control or the need to regulate emotions, it makes us feel good short term eating something yummy or eating something that um, reminds us of home or is comforting can play a role in in the psychological aspect. Um, but again, these are all mostly correlation studies. So I think there's a little bit more that needs to be done causation wise, just to make sure of what that clear link is. But I mean, there's, there's seems to be a very clear association between experience of sexual trauma and eating disorders. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And so, you know, for yourself, when you're working with somebody who maybe has both an eating disorder and you know, uh, uh, you know, sexual trauma, what, do you, which one do you approach first? Do you approach the eating disorder first or the sexual healing or are they, do you approach both at the same time? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think it depends on the severity. So as a mental health professional, the first thing I always want to do is, is rule out any physical health concerns, right? So if they're at the point of experiencing an eating disorder where they are very much physically unhealthy, right, where they maybe need more support than a therapist, I might resource them out to um, a place that specializes in eating disorders or a hospital type environment just to make sure that they build up enough strength to be physically present in maybe the mental health work. Mm-hmm. Um, if they the person is having is experiencing an eating disorder and um, is is more of a lower level concern, not to say that there's like a hierarchy of eating disorders because I think they, they can all be problematic, right? But if somebody at least is still eating eating um, in a place where they have some energy and they can deal with doing some of the deeper trauma work, then I will work with those concurrently. So doing some trauma work, especially if trauma is the culprit of why they're eating um, that way or struggling with eating, um, doing some trauma work while also doing some things to address um the the physical side maybe also working in conjunction with a nutritionist or somebody else who can help with the difficulty with eating on the physical side yeah yeah that's great i like that and you know we have a lot of practitioners therapists and and trauma-informed educators in our community for anybody who is holding space or supporting someone who's gone through sexual violence, uh, what would you say is the most effective approach? Like what would be the, the first step in, in the process of healing? And at what point would you say that maybe they need to refer out? So, so for practitioners, right, if you are with a client who has experienced sexual violence and Unfortunately, the numbers are so high that you likely have been, whether you know it or not, um, would be once you do find out to give the survivor space to share whatever they feel comfortable with. A lot of times as a practitioner, you might be the first person that this client has ever spoken about this experience of sexual violence with. You might be that very first person. So it's so important just to be present to be listening, to hold space in a way that this person feels comfortable so that they can get out everything they need to get out. And that is that first step is being that listening ear because there's so many reasons why people don't report. And a lot of it has to do with the fear of the reactions from the people that they are reporting to. So as a clinician, if you can at least show them or be a model of somebody hearing this and not judging them or not reacting in a way to re-traumatize and just listen, Mm -hmm. that's going to be extremely important in that person's healing process. Yeah, I really like that. That's that's key. And then, you know, I, I think it's also important to recognize what we are not qualified to take on and, and to refer out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Would, can you add to that? Is there anything that you would, you would say about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's for the clinician to really continually check in with themselves and see what's coming up. If, if um, 
when you are listening to this person, maybe it might bring up um, feelings of your own trauma, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that is a signal for you to get some consultation or to get support from yourself and refer this person out until you feel more comfortable dealing with your your own experiences. Um, another thing might be um, you're not very well-versed in trauma and you're not very well-versed in sexual trauma. That might be something to take a look at yourself and say, am I the best person qualified to help with this. Um, And then lastly, if there are specific trauma modalities that you know to be helpful that um, maybe you're just not well-versed in or you haven't done before, you know, certain modalities like EMDR um, or CBT for PTSD, if you feel like there's somebody else who might be a better fit for that person, then um, that's a good space to refer out. But again, at least if you can hold that space at the beginning um, and show that person some comfort and compassion and validation in their experience, that's going to be a really big step for the survivor. And that's going to help in the transition of sending them to somebody else you think might be more helpful because at least they've had the support of you and they know that you want to give them the best support possible, even if that means with somebody else. Yeah. Let's talk a a bit about those research research proven modalities. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about those. Mm -hmm. So as far as research proven modalities, so CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is something that's been studied for a long time. Um, And so there is CBT specifically for PTSD. So that's, that's a modality folks use. Another one that is, um, very important to me and has been documented to have a lot of effectiveness is EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, which works with more limbic parts of the brain to help really shake up folks when they are stuck. Uh Um, So I think EMDR is really helpful. And then other interventions that have shown to be helpful in especially rebuilding the mind-body connection that gets disrupted when there is a body violation um, are things that get us into our body. So yoga, um, there's, there's even yoga for trauma and yoga for trauma workshops that work on um, helping survivors specifically. Um, things like community theater, things like sports, things that get things that get us into our bodies and connected to others in a way that we feel safe um, are going to be really helpful long term as well. Yeah, and I love that we can we can look for external support, but I also think that it's really important when we're in a relationship that there's that support from the partner as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of there's a deeper layer of healing that can happen when you are partnered and you're supporting each other through past experiences. Um, mm-hmm. What what does that process look like? Uh, you know, what would be some of the ways that that partners can support each other in in this growth. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of times, what I see is couples are struggling with either um, sexual or other concerns um, that are often impacted by one or both parties' experience of sexual violence. And a lot of times, this doesn't even show up until the the couple's been together for a while. So. 
having that partner be supportive in the healing process is so important. And part of that has to do with, again, I go back to the research. So we we look at research on post-traumatic growth, or um, sometimes we call that resilience, right? This Mm -hmm. positive psychological transformation following a trauma. Um, If we look at research on post-traumatic growth, one of the key facets of PTG is the way we um, see social support, right? So this perception of adequate social support is actually uh, associated with improved adaptivity. And so the better a person is able to adapt to something shows that they are capable of thriving as opposed to just surviving, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're more likely to thrive and you're more likely to take a chance in the face of adversity if you know you have a supportive partner by your side if something weren't to go the way that you expected. So partners are essential in showing social support as a means of post-traumatic growth. So where the partner comes in in the healing process, um, it's important to work, you know, individually on the individual stuff and then as a couple on the couple stuff. So, but you both need to be active and involved in overcoming the effects of sexual abuse and eventually establish new, healthy, and mutually satisfying ways of relating and especially relating sexually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and you asked about one of the ways you can do that. So I really like um, Wendy Maltz's approach to sexual healing, um, and especially for couples. So a lot of it starts with um, interventions of building uh, closeness and intimacy in ways that are non-sexual, right? And in building fun and connected ways of relating to each other, like playing patty cake or what she calls the pen exercise, right? So just expanding what intimacy means to rebuild those connections, rebuild those feelings of trust so that, again, you two can establish new, healthy, mutually satisfying ways of relating to each other sexually. Yeah. And I think it's a process too. It's not linear. It takes time. It takes that commitment to mm-hmm. to constantly be curious about each other. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And and even in that process, it is it is a process. So I tell everyone, expect bumps in the road. But again, look at the whole journey, because if you two can get through the experience of sexual healing together, that's going to build a deep emotional bond. And then the skills that you build in focusing on sexual healing are going to be the same skills that help your relationship thrive in the long run across different areas. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's a very important important piece there. And, you know, Holly, I think the work that you're doing is amazing. I feel that it's so important and so needed for people who want to find out more about you and the work that you do. How can they connect with you? Sure thing. So they can connect with me online at the hollywoodsexologist.com. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at the Hollywood sexologist. Great. Thank you so much, Holly. This is a topic we haven't talked about yet on the podcast. I think it's so important. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having me. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor. 
Tawny Stoiber for the artwork and our theme music by Bellwitz. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. I will stand here and shout.